Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy So we're going to be studying Zechariah. And so, uh, so we're going to be in this book for a little while. And uh, by the way, I should just mention this. If you're new or visiting, as a church, we, the majority of the time, not every Sunday, but the majority of the time, we just take a book of the Bible and we walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter until we're done that book. So we just finished the book of Hebrews, hence we're beginning a new book this morning. Now the book of Zechariah, just a bit of a background, it is known as what's called a um, a post-exilic book, not to be mistaken with like, you know, uh, you know, post-historic or something prehistoric, sounds similar, it's not. Post-exilic, and it's kind of this fancy word, it's because the prophets can be broken up into basically three main groups or categories. You have the pre-exilic, the exilic, and the post-exilic, all right? And if you're wondering, what's exilic? Exilic just simply means exile. It's just the way that we say exile. So it's the prophets that prophesied before the exile. They'd be pre-exilic. Exile meaning when Jerusalem went into captivity, 70 years. They were carried off into Babylonian captivity. So you have the pre-exilic prophets. So these are those, again, that prophesied before Israel went into exile. So you have Isaiah. You would have um, Jeremiah would be a part of that. Micah, Amos, Hosea, lots of them. Quite the majority were probably pre-exilic. And these prophets, they warned Israel over and over and over again for hundreds of years Basically, you need to stop doing what you're doing. Stop your idolatry. Stop, stop treating uh, the, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, the land in a wrong way that I have not commanded you to, to treat it. You need to treat these things right. Or, he warned them, or you're going to be kicked out of the land. You see, just as God had kicked out the Amorites or the Canaanites from the land of Canaan that Israel took over, God warned Israel. You know, if you, if you remember when we studied Genesis, it was actually God said, you can't have that land yet because there's some people already in the land. The problem was, is he, he said, those people, I'm going to give them a chance to repent. And he gave them 500 years, basically, for them to, to repent of their ways. They didn't, and so God said, you've got to leave. You're done. But here's the thing. He didn't just say to Israel, hey, go ahead. This is your land now. Do whatever you want. He said, you can have the land. Go into the land, but you need to obey me, or I'm going to remove you from the land. And so what happened is these prophets came pre-exile and warned them over and over and over again, hundreds of years, stop what you're doing, obey the Lord, turn to him, repent of your ways, or God's going to kick you out of the land just like he kicked out the people that were there before you. And if you've read the Bible, you know what happened. God kicked them out, right? What happened? They got, the land got destroyed, it just demolished. Ultimately, the final kicking blow was from the Babylonians who came in, just, just laid waste to Jerusalem and carried off whoever was left there into exile. So you have the pre-exilic prophets, then you have the exile or the exilic prophets. This would be Daniel and Ezekiel. They prophesied during Israel's exile to Assyria and to Babylon. 
if you remember the, 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 the if you actually, here, I'll give you a little tip. If you were helping right now in kids' church, you would know that there is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Israel. It got split up, right, after Solomon. It went, it went Saul, David, and then after David was Solomon, and then it was split. After Solomon, the kingdom got split. Israel was no longer one kingdom, became two kingdoms, the north and the south. And it was during that time period that, um, why was I talking about this? The exile, right, the exile, thank you. Um, the exile, right. So the northern kingdom actually, so the northern kingdom was like the, the majority of the uh, tribes of Israel. And they got carried off sooner into exile. That's right, thank you, Connor, that was the whole point. They went sooner into exile. Assyria took them into exile, actually quite, about 150 years before the rest of, of Judah um, was taken uh, into exile in, by Babylon. So before Jerusalem completely fell almost 150 years they were in Assyria. So they actually had an extra long exile, but then eventually Judah got carried away as well into exile. And um, so during that exile, that 70 years that all of Israel was in exile, that's when we have Daniel and Ezekiel who prophesied. Okay, but we also know that, um, that the, the captivity was 70 years. Why? Because Jeremiah prophesied that. He said, it's going to be 70 years that you'll be in exile. And so we also have now what's known as the post-exilic prophets. And those are the prophets that, that many of the people that went into exile from Israel, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Hebrews that went into exile, into Babylon, but only about 42,000 after the 70 years left. They were free to go. Babylon was no longer the, the, the reigning nation at that time, and they were free to leave, but only about 42,000 of them left and went back to Jerusalem because there was nothing. It was destroyed totally destroyed the temple the walls there was no it was just the city was gone but about 42,000 went back to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem and this is who the post-exilic prophets prophesy to to this what we call the remnant the 42,000 that were in Israel so it was interesting because as I started studying the book two things really jumped out at me right away one was that well they were the same thing but they're from two different commentators one commentator pointed this out that Zechariah is one of the most difficult books of the Old Testament Another commentator, Carl Laney, he called Zechariah an obscure book and extremely difficult to understand. So I read those and I was like, oh great, what have I gotten myself into? Um, to be honest, it's actually one of the reasons I felt led to teach the, the book of Zechariah to us as a church, because not long ago, about two months ago, I finished reading through Zechariah in my morning times, and I read it and I was like, what is going on in this book? And I thought, I, need, I think I need to teach this to the church next, um, because you know what? When, when you learn, it's because I learn. <laughs> I'm not way ahead of you. I don't know it all, okay? It takes a lot of study, and so I learn a lot of these things too. And so, are you guys ready to study the book of Zechariah? Yeah. yeah? Grab a Bible. There should be some in the seats around you if you don't have a Bible. You need a Bible to follow along. It's going to make it a whole lot easier. And so grab a Bible from the seat uh, that's in the seat underneath you or around you. And, uh, and if you want to find Zechariah, the easiest way is find the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, so find the Gospel of Matthew, which is like quite a ways. It's like near the back third of the Bible, basically. Go to the Gospel of Matthew, then go backwards. You'll hit Malachi, and then right before Malachi, you'll hit Zechariah. And if you're using the Bible that's in the seats, it's, uh, it's page 793, because I have the same Bible. Uh, why, don't we, um, why don't we pray? Uh, I've entitled my message this morning, Coming Back. Let's pray before we look this morning at coming back. Father, I thank you for your word and, and for 
for your scripture that, man, this was written thousands of years ago. About, about 500 years before Jesus even came. But Lord, we think of this, this word so old, so ancient, yet so applicable. So relevant still even for us here today, right here, right now. And I pray, God, that, that you would, as we're going to see this morning in this message to come back, to return to you, Lord, that for all of us, we would heed your call to come back, to return. Jesus, to give you our hearts, our lives fully to you. Lord, bless your word. Bless this time as we study your scripture together. Uh, may you help me just to be clear, to be understandable. Uh, Lord, with a book that's very difficult to understand, give us insight and wisdom. We invite you, Holy Spirit, right now to be the teacher in this room, not just me. Teach us today, we pray. We love you and we thank you. Amen. All right, so Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to begin, and the first thing that we're going to see in coming back is the call to return. It's the first thing we see this morning, return. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, so right off the top, verse one, we get a lot of important information. Number one, we get the date of the book and we get the author of the book. And this is really important. It, we're told that it's in the eighth month, the second year of Darius, which is strange because normally if you've read any of the other prophets, 99% of the time, how do they date their book? They date it with the, the ruling king of Israel at that time, right? So in the year of Uzziah and all these different people, right? They would use the reigning king of Israel. Well, you know that at this point, there is no king of Israel. And so how are they going to date their book? They now date their book by the leading world ruler, who at that time was Darius, the king of Persia. So Babylon has now, if you studied Daniel with us, you would have known Daniel prophesied everything that would happen. Started with Babylon. Babylon was split apart. And then it became the, the leading rulers were the Medes and the Persians. The Medo-Persian Empire is that what took over next. And so here is now what we get into. So Darius, the king of Persia, is now ruling. And it's in the eighth month, we're told, in the second year of his reign. Which is interesting because this puts um, Zechariah's uh, book or word to the remnant only two months after Haggai. So we have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that were all post-exilic prophets. So this is only two months after Haggai's call, which we studied Haggai quite... Anybody, was anybody a part of our church when we studied Haggai? Besides my wife? <laughs> I'm glad you put up your hand, Andrea. I was a little worried there if you hadn't. Yeah, I don't know if anybody, like it was a long time ago that we did the book of Haggai, but very short book, and you can see it's a call. The Haggai focuses on rebuilding the temple. And so this would just have been two months after Haggai's message began that Zechariah begins with this word. And then, of course, verse 1 also told us who the author was, and it was Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo. So his father and his grandfather. That's who it mentions, which is really interesting because, well, it's important, number one, because I already mentioned there's a, almost 30 people in the Bible with the name Zechariah. It's a very, very common name in the Bible. So this sets out for us who he actually was, but it's also interesting because right off the top, the names really point out the theme, kind of summarize the book for us right off the start. You see, the, the, the name Zechariah, it means that the Lord remembers. The name Berechiah means the Lord will bless. And Edo means at the set time. And that's really what this book is speaking about, that the Lord remembers. He remembers Israel. He wants to bless Israel, and he will do it at the set time. That's kind of the theme and the message of the book in a lot of ways. But it's not just for Israel, you guys. It's, it's also for us. 
We need to take that to us as well today, that God remembers us, he wants to bless us, and he will do it at the set time. You see, despite 70 years of captivity, you think about it, Israel for 70 years, in a sense, they've been spanked. Bad Israel. They've kind of been set aside, they've been put in the corner, in the doghouse. 70 years of captivity. Sin and idolatry had pushed them there. But despite the fact that they really blew it, what does this say? God remembers them. God still has plans for them, wants to bless them, and will do it at his set time. That's the word that that just his name is presenting to the nation of Israel at this moment, which is good news. Do you not think that's good news? For people that had blown it, for people that had been bad and spanked for 70 years, how many of you have ever blown it? Yeah, there's like seven of you. I know, me neither. I've never either. But for those seven of you that have ever blown it, this is good news right? Because this is God's word to you that maybe you have even faced some discipline and some consequences in your lives, but God still remembers you. God still loves you, and he still has a plan for you and desires to bless you. That's what this book's about. That's what the the very author's name was all about, and there's such hope that's given, And, and this is really God's message to start the book. Look at verse two now. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, them being the remnant um, that were in Zechariah's day right then and there, So say to this remnant, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And this is really important because the message is basically, he's saying this, you know what, there's hope, but hope really begins when we deal with our sin, when we deal with our mess, with our screw-ups, with our how we've ever blown it. That's when, the reality is, and this is the message that you'll probably hear if you go on Instagram all the time. You'll maybe have different preachers that you follow you'll hear a common message that God wants to bless you. God's blessing and favor is for you. He loves you. That is 100% true. But there's another message that we can't also forget, that we need to return to him. That's the message that Zechariah is giving here. He says, you need to return. Another word, it's the same uh, in the Hebrew word, teshuva, repent, return, turn to God, return. Because make no mistake, God is love. God does want to bless you, but God is also holy and perfect. And sin cannot be in the presence of God. It's impossible for a holy God and for sin to dwell together. In fact, we see here, what did did he say? What did he say in verse 2? The Lord was what? He was very angry with your fathers. Sin makes God angry. I don't know how else to say it. You need to be aware of that this morning. Sin makes God angry. It actually brings, the scriptures speak of it as the wrath of God. The wrath of God because of sin. The wrath of God is upon the earth, upon humanity. And we can't neglect that message that, yes, God wants to bless you, but there's, there's a problem. The wrath of God needs to be poured out because of our sin. But here's a beautiful thing. What has God done about his anger? What has God done about the wrath of God? Somebody help me out. Jesus. Jesus. That's right. If you're ever wondering, if you're new here, the answer is always Jesus. Okay? That's all you got to do. If I ever ask a question, 99.9% of the time, you just got to shout out Jesus and you'll be just fine. Jesus. That's the answer. That's what God did. He was angry. There was wrath. But what did God do? He came himself. He came himself. He put on flesh and blood and took his wrath upon himself. He placed, the word of God tells us that all the wrath of God was placed on Jesus. That's amazing. That's beautiful. The wrath that we deserved was placed instead upon Jesus. He took the wrath for us. So what does God say now? He says, return to me because you know what? We can in Christ. In Christ, we can return. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. What a promise. I, I, I just, 
I've been praying this week that we would get this. You know, this is so powerful. This applies to anybody's relationship, whether it be Israel or whether it be us here now. No matter how far from God you are or maybe you have been, no matter how big of a mess you have made, maybe you feel right now like you're in exile or you're in captivity. The invitation, the word of the Lord to you this morning is this, return to me and I will return to you. You know, our kind of New Testament version of this is James chapter 4, verse 8. James puts it this way. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love this verse. You've, you've, you've heard me use this verse before, and I have this idea. Whenever I think of this verse, James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you, I always picture in my head, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going the wrong direction. And it's like God's just waiting He's watching, he's waiting. We have the story of the prodigal son, or maybe a betterly, better described, the, the prodigal father, really. And he's watching, he's waiting us as we're kind of going this one way. And as soon as we even look, I feel like it's like God's like, yeah, and he just jumps on us. That's the idea, that's the image that I get from this verse. He, it's, it's not, sometimes we have this idea that it's like, I'm, I'm going the wrong way, I gotta turn, and I've gotta at least live for a week good before God will bless me. Do you know what I mean? And God's like, no, you, turn, you just turn, and I'm on you. I'm on you. Draw near and I'll draw near to you. Return to me and I will return to you. You know what else this really tells us is that, that we have, whatever relationship with God that we have is the exact relationship with God that we want, that we've created in a lot of ways. That's what this is saying. Whatever depth and intimacy you want with God, he says, I'll go there. I will go there. However deep you want to go, however intimate you want to be, I will meet you there. If we feel distant from God, you know what? It's not his fault. God hasn't moved. We need to know that. It's not his fault. It reminds me of this old couple that was traveling down the road in their car. Do you remember back in like the 70s? Anybody here born in the 70s? Anyone a 70s kid like me? Yeah, 76? Anyone 76ers? Yeah. All right, so we got some uh, old people. Yeah, yeah, no, don't worry. If you were born before 76, I'm not saying that. I'm not inferring anything. <laughs> uh, but do you remember back in like the 70s, I remember even in the 80s, um, I remember some of the cars oftentimes didn't have bucket seats in the front, but they had a big bench. Do you remember those? I remember the, like, uh, like our truck. I remember we had a truck that had a big bench across the front and a station wagon that had not just a bench across the front, but in the middle and then in the back, there were seats that popped up and you could, it was awesome. Totally unsafe, I'm sure, but they were cool. And anyway, this old couple, this, this is back, you know, the 70s or 80s, they're driving along the road. And as they're driving along, the, the, the wife sees these oncoming cars, and similar kind of cars with the, the bench seat in the front. And she sees in the, all these oncoming cars that the, the wives are kind of snuggled up next to their husbands. And, and she's kind of like, oh, she's getting all sentimental and kind of romantic. And, and she just, she kind of looks over to her husband and says, you know, don't you remember when we used to ride like that? Don't you remember though? Those were the days. Hey, like, we would be so close to what? Why is it that we don't sit that close anymore, she said. And the husband just simply replied, he said, it wasn't me who moved. <laughs> Where was he? Still behind the steering wheel. Right? It was the wife that had moved away. And you know what? It's the same in our relationship with God. It's the same. God doesn't move. It's us that moves. If we're far from God, he hasn't moved one bit. It's us. And, and like Zechariah called to the people of Israel that had returned, this remnant that had returned to Jerusalem, he says to them, listen, return to God. 
and he will return to you. It's the same message for us. Return to God. He will return to you. You know, this is an important message because really, if you only read, if if we didn't have the book of Zechariah, you might think that all God was interested in because you have Haggai was in rebuilding the temple. That's what Haggai was all about. All about rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah was all about rebuilding what? The wall. We went through Nehemiah when we were in the gym. But, but Haggai was all about rebuilding the temple. You might think, well, that's all God cared about was the construction of a, a wall and a temple. But we see here, God was actually not just in, in, in interested in rebuilding a temple or a wall. God wanted to rebuild a people. That's what his heart was about. And so he says, yes, you've returned to Jerusalem, but I want you to return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. Now in coming back, God then, through Zechariah, secondly instructs us, though, that we have to learn. We have to learn. Look at verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now the Bible is very clear. If you've read the Bible at all, you know this to be true, that, that we are always to honor our father and mother. Always. We are to honor our father and mother and respect them no matter what, no matter who they are. The Bible calls us to do that. But the Bible does not call us to just blindly follow the same path that they followed or that they led, right? God actually calls us to learn from their mistakes. He says, don't repeat them. Don't repeat the mistakes of your fathers. In fact, there's some things you need to avoid just straight out because of what we would call generational sins. If any of you have done the Set Free Retreat with us, we talk about something that science calls epigenetics, epigenetics, which is like basically characteristics and traits. You know, we use, we use words like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? It's kind of describing all the same thing, that we carry the same traits and characteristics that our forefathers had, in particular of our parents. So Andrew and I, we have two kids. Uh, we have Rebecca, who's 21, and Micah, who's 20. Rebecca, so Rebecca and I have the same thumbs, these super straight thumbs, We've got the same feet. I mean, we joke around sometimes that Rebecca's just me in a female version. Like, that, like, like we're so similar in a lot of ways. Whereas Andrea, Andrea has these thumbs that go like, they curve, the hitchhiker thumb. Hold up your thumb. Hold up your thumb for everybody. Yeah, look at her thumb. I don't know if you can see it. She can bend it like, it goes like, it like bends right back to her hand almost. Andrea has that kind of thumb. Completely opposite thumb is mine. Micah has the same thumbs. Her arches, she's got basically no arches. Her feet are just kind of collapsed. Micah has the same feet as Andrea. That's epigenetics. That's something that's been passed on, right, from parent to child. In the same way, it's not just physical, physical characteristics, though. We know that, that oftentimes the same things, we have the propensity of our parents in the same ways. That's what epigenetics even teaches us. Uh, the Bible is clear that we don't pay for our parents' sin, but we sometimes are stained by our parents' sin, if you know what I mean. We don't pay for their sins, but we can be stained by their sins. That's why, like, maybe one parent that is an alcoholic, you can see their children have to be much more careful around alcohol, a greater susceptibility. So all kinds of things like that, generational sins. And so God says, he's like, listen, learn from the mistakes of your parents. Don't repeat them. In fact, you know, sometimes we use the word heritage. Heritage has kind of been a little bit popularized in some ways, I think, these days, that we are to honor our ancestors and the path that they set. Do you know the, the truth is this? If a heritage is corrupt, we should reject that heritage. I'm sorry, but we should. We shouldn't. We honor our our ancestors, but we don't need to follow in their footsteps. If there's a heritage that's corrupt, we should reject it and find a new one in Christ. 
you know, I'm thankful that I have a godly heritage. I have grandparents that both, on both sides, my mom and my dad, both my, my grandparents loved the Lord. Incredible stories. My, my mom's side, I mean, there's, there's a story of my, my grandpa being like rescued by an angel. They're sure of it. Incredible story. On my dad's side, my, my dad's side, my, um, my, my grandma and grandpa were missionaries in, in, uh, in Nepal. My dad was actually born in India, in Darjeeling, if you didn't know that. So, so there's this heritage that I have. Not only that, but my dad's sister, my aunt, her and her husband were missionaries in Nepal for many years as well. That's what we would call a godly heritage. That's a heritage that I should learn from and continue in, should I not? Andrea, on the other hand, her parents didn't come from a godly heritage. What did you say, Andrea? You're just getting... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Andrea's amazing, by the way. I just need to tell you that this morning. She's like, I'm just getting ripped on this morning. <laughs> Crazy thumbs and wacky heritage. But the truth is this, is that Andrea's parents don't come from a, a, a godly heritage. They don't. Andrea's parents don't come from, from a heritage that walked in the ways of the Lord. But here's the thing. Her parents learned, I don't want to have the same heritage that they had. And her parents broke the cycle. They broke the cycle, praise God. And they decided instead to live for Jesus, to set aside that heritage that had been laid out for them. They said, we're not going to go that way. I'm not going to follow in the footsteps of my parents. Instead, I'm going to blaze a new path with Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And you know what? Those, both her mom and dad were from non-Christian backgrounds, have now become the first uh, the first generation of Christians in their family. And now you can see it starting to spill over, right? It, praise God. We see generations now that have been changed because they began a new heritage in Jesus. We have to learn from both the good and the bad of our forefathers. That's what God's saying here. Because the reality is this, is we all know who or, or what wins in the end. It's always God that wins in the end, and it's always God's word that stands true, Always. And so God, he actually is going to ask three questions now. Look at verse 5. He goes, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, so that's the first question. And the prophets, do they live forever? Where are the prophets? Third question, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So he's like, where are your fathers? They're dead. Where are the prophets that spoke my word? They're dead. Where's my word? Still standing, Right? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed, sorry, to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. You know, if we learn one thing from Israel's forefathers, if, if we learn one thing even from our forefathers, it's this, it's that God's word always has the final say. God's word always stands. And this is the example that we have here. Prophets warned for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years what disobedience to God would bring. They even prophesied that it would be 70 years that they would owe of captivity. And what happened? There was no denying that, that this is what Zechariah is saying. God's saying this. He's saying, listen, there's no denying. Everything came to pass to a T that I said would happen, right? It all came to pass. God's word, they, the forefathers were gone. Many of them died in exile, right? The, the prophets who foretold what would happen, they were gone too. But God's word was still there, still standing. It came to pass. As one commentary put it, the situation the returnees were in may be summarized like this. Their ancestors were dead. The prophets of old were dead. The word of God was alive. That's how, that's how it is. And you know what? Maybe this morning, maybe you're here and you don't come from a godly heritage. 
Maybe you don't come from a good spiritual environment or upbringing. I want you to be encouraged today. Let this be an encouragement to you. Maybe your family rebelled against God and, and maybe you can see the tragedy and the pain that it brought. Maybe, maybe misery that's been visited upon your family because of disobedience towards God, because of ignoring God's ways and principles and truths. It was the same as Zechariah's day. God said, I was very angry with your fathers. You may come from a similar background. Their fathers rebelled against God. But what did God say to Zechariah? He said, return to me and I will return to you. And even if we didn't grow up with a godly spiritual heritage, you need to know this. God remembers you. God wants to bless you. And I would say this, now is the time. Now is the time. This is one of the great lessons of Zechariah is that, that God didn't set aside his people because of their disobedience. He wasn't done with them. And you know what? You need to know this today. God isn't done with you because of whatever you've done, your disobedience or your family's disobedience. And so I want to just challenge you today. Return today to him. Learn. Learn from your parents and return. Because thirdly, we see in coming back that we must discern. Discern. So we return, we learn, and now we discern. Verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. So this is about three months. If you remember, the first one was in the, um, um, the eighth month. So this is about three months later. That this, this, that from the first word to return, this is now three months happening after this. So we get a new thing. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, now we begin the first of eight visions. Okay? So we're going to receive eight visions from this point on that, that Zechariah is going to receive in one night. This one night, he's going to get all, I think it's the next six, or, I think six chapters of the book take place on this one night, on this, this the 24th of the 11th month. Uh, Zechariah is very much like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Who in one night was swept away to Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. It's kind of the same idea here that's going on. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Charles Dickens was inspired by Zechariah, I'm not sure. But these visions, all that take place in the one night, they're going to span really the scope of, of human history. And, and they're going to tell Israel's future. They're going to focus on the Messiah, on Jesus, his, his future return. It is, it is at this point in the book that we're entering, and you might have read that first part and been like, oh, that's easy, Peter. How can that be so difficult? Here's where it starts to get hard, okay? It's these visions that cause commentators to say it's one of the most difficult books to discern. But we're going to have fun, hey? We're going to go through this. We're going to do our best to figure out what's happening here. And what we're going to see, actually, is that these visions really speak comfort and hope to these struggling Jews, to this remnant that was in Jerusalem. Verse 8, it begins. I saw in the night... And behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. And behind him were red, sorrel, which is um, like a reddish brown or a spotted color, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. This is a pattern that we're going to kind of see, thankfully, in these visions. It starts off with simple statements of what Zechariah saw. Here he said, I saw, right? I saw. And then the next part in the pattern is that he asks, what, are you, what am I seeing, basically? What is this? Which how many of you are thankful that he asked that question? Can you imagine if it's just like, I saw, and we have no description? Oh man, we'd, even, we'd just be really out to lunch. But he's, he, he said, so he sees, and then he asks what he's seen, which we're very thankful he did, and then the next pattern is that he is shown or he's told 
what is happening. And, and, it's, and he's told most often by what commentators call the interpreting angel. It's just the angel that interprets the vision for him. But also, we're going to see that sometimes there is a mystery man that explains the vision. Okay? Which is what we have here in verse 10 this morning. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered. So all of a sudden, it's not the angel speaking, but it's this man. Remember, he talks about this man with the red horse standing among the myrtle trees. That's the guy that all of a sudden starts talking to him. He answered. He explains. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. All right, so just, just to kind of bring us up to speed, we've got these different colored horses, and we're going to see later that it's angels that, that ride these horses that, that do what? We're told here, they, he explains it. They are out to do what? Patrol. They're just on patrol. They're just observing, patrolling the earth, and they, come, they, they, they then report back, we're told. We also are told about, so we've got these horses with angels. We're told about, there's another character here, this man among the myrtle trees that we're told about, whom they come back and they report to. This man among the myrtle trees that's in the glen, or other translations say the ravine. Verse 11 tells us who this man is. What does it say in verse 11? Say it loud. Yeah, the angel of the Lord. Okay, so do we, do we have a, an idea what's going on here? You got some horses, they're on patrol, they come back and they report to this man who is the angel of the Lord. And he's among these myrtle trees. That's the scene that is laid out for us. For the 42,000 remnant that had returned to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem, this would have been encouraging for a number of reasons. First of all, they had started rebuilding the temple. But if you remember when we studied Nehemiah, what happened when they started rebuilding the wall? Was it easy? It's like, put a brick, but you know, like, you know, what, what did they have to do? They, people were trying to, to stop it. They were attacking. In fact, when they rebuilt the wall, they didn't just have like a, a brick and a, you know, a, a, some mortar and a shovel. What did they actually carry with them? Sword. They had to carry weapons in case they were attacked right then and there. So that's their experience. They'd rebuilt the wall. They finished it. Nehemiah taught us that. They finished the wall. But at this point, they're really discouraged. They're like, man, that was tough. Like, we could have been killed at any time. If you were a city in those days without a wall, you had no protection. So that's why they had to start with the wall. They rebuilt the wall. They started rebuilding the temple, but they got really discouraged. And they're like, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Overwhelmed, afraid, obviously, that, that the same thing can happen again, that, that they could be attacked. But, but what's going on here? The report is what? What was the report that these horses, these angels on the horses brought back? They went and patrolled, and they said that the earth is what? It's at rest. It's at rest. The idea here is this. He's saying, you know what? There's peace. There is nothing. There's nothing to hinder you from rebuilding the temple. Go ahead. Get back to work. That's the message that is being brought. No need to fear military or other countries coming to attack. There is peace at this time. You know, sometimes we may feel, I don't know if you've ever thought this, but you might think things like, you know, if I obey God, there's all these things that could potentially happen. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? If I do this, if I really obey him, it could actually get really bad and dangerous and who knows. And, and I think God is wanting to speak this to us today to say, you know what, from his vantage point, and believe me, God can see all, he's saying there's nothing hindering you from obeying all that I've called you to do. That's what he said to Zechariah, to these remnant, and he's saying the same thing to us today, just do it. Obey me, there's nothing that is out there to be afraid of, to hinder. 
This was also encouraging because of who this man is and where he is standing. Now, verse 11, we already determined this man was called the angel of the Lord. So just who is this mystery man? You guys know the answer. There you go. Well done, Jesus. Good job. This is Jesus. The vast majority of scholars, like 99.9% of scholars, would all agree that when we see what's titled the, so the definite article of the, not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, is a reference to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. This is a pre-incarnate, so before his incarnation, before he came to earth in Bethlehem as the baby, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That's what the angel of the Lord refers to. And we see this many times in the Bible. There's lots of examples in the Old Testament. You think of with, with Abraham, you think of with Moses, you think of with, with Hagar, uh, you think of Joshua, you think of, um, you think of many times actually in the book of Judges, book of Daniel, you'll see this reference, the angel of the Lord. And it's a reference to Jesus pre-incarnate before he came as the babe of Bethlehem. And here's the thing, where is he standing? It, it doesn't really mean anything to me, but as I studied, I was like, oh, Interesting. He's standing specifically among the myrtle trees. Any of you have any myrtle trees in your house, on your property? I'd never even heard of a myrtle tree. Well, as I was studying, I realized commentators all point out that a myrtle tree is actually a symbol of Israel. It represents Israel. A myrtle tree, which I'd never seen before, is a very small evergreen tree. It doesn't get anywhere even beyond eight feet. The tallest it can ever grow is about eight feet. So it's a very small evergreen. It also thrives in the Kidron Valley, which is right outside Jerusalem, and and it produces these petals that, when they're crushed, emit this real beautiful fragrance. Also, interestingly, I found out that Israel uses um, the branches from the myrtle tree specifically when they celebrate every year the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the tree that they would use to get the branches from. So for Israel, this had a very strong significance to them. One commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, he says this, Being an evergreen, he points out kind of why we would would say it represents Israel. The myrtle tree illustrates Israel's staying quality through history. Being small, it illustrates the insignificant state of the nation when compared with Gentile world powers. You think about that. Think about even to this day, how big is the nation of Israel land-wise? It's miniature, tiny. And how much attention is on Israel? Lots, the world. The world focuses on Israel, right? In the same way, this insignificant little bush, yet all the world is attracted to it. That it emits a sweet aroma when crushed speaks of Israel's propensity to grow from persecution. Being in a ravine or a hollow, the ESV uses the word glen, but other trans- most translations say ravine or hollow, is pointing to the particularly low state of Israel at this time of the vision. You see, what is encouraging is where this man is. Where is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is right there amongst Israel. That's what he's saying. I'm right here with you. I'm right here with you. And you know what I love? Where is Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? Where is he? Revelation 2 and 3, he's standing amongst the churches, is he not? He's right there with the churches. You see, you know what blew my mind away? God calls us to return and he's already there. Do you hear what I'm saying? He's already there. He says, come back because I'm here. I haven't left. Jesus already stands amongst you, ready to receive you back. He's just waiting. And now look at what Jesus, this pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus is doing. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord, so the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, said, O Lord. 
Now, whenever you see all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. So God the Father. This is God himself. So the angel of the Lord says to God, How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? What essentially is Jesus doing here? He's praying. That's exactly what he's doing. He's praying to the Father. Some people go, well, that can't be the angel of the Lord. That can't be Jesus if he's talking to, to the Father. How does that make any sense? How does God talk to God? What did Jesus do when he was on this earth? He talked to God all the time. He talked to the Father all the time. What does Jesus do right now? Yeah, Hebrews 7.25. He continuously lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. This is the picture that we have here. He's interceding on behalf of Israel. He's basically praying this prayer. He's like, imagine if you had been, just picture this, if you've been on a 70-year backslide, away from the Lord for 70 years, any backslide even, what is the prayer that you probably have, the plea that you probably have, is probably some sort of a thought of like, will I ever be what I once was? Right? You feel like trash. You feel like garbage. God, will I ever have that relationship with you that I once had? Will I ever be what I once had? That's really the question that, that Jesus is asking on behalf of Israel at this point, the remnant that is in Jerusalem. And what is God's response to the plea? Look at verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. What is God's answer to that prayer? Absolutely. You better believe it. Yes, he says, he doesn't just say, just tell them. He says, cry it out. Yell it out. I love my people, essentially is what he's trying to say. I'm jealous for them. I have an intense love for them. Not a passive love, but an intense love. In fact, verse 15, he goes on to say this. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, some translations say with Israel. That's kind of the idea here. For while I was angry just a bit with Israel, they, the nations that are now at ease, furthered the disaster. You see, see, God wanted to use Assyria. He wanted to use Babylon and these other nations to discipline Israel, but he didn't want them to destroy Israel. And these nations went too far. They tried to destroy Israel. So he was a little angry with Israel, but now we're told he's exceedingly angry with these nations. He's angry because the other nations, they're at peace. They're at ease while his people suffer. And if all the earth is at rest at the expense of his people, that's no rest at all for God, is it? You never need to wonder if God sees your plight. You know what? He sees. He sees what you're going through, and he cares. And you know what? And he wants to work on your behalf to bring you freedom, to bring you victory in your life, because he is jealous for you. Therefore, verse 16, we'll wrap it up here. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Would that not have been an encouraging word to this remnant that had returned? He's basically just saying this, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. And I'm not done with your land either. That's the other word that he was bringing here. I'm not, I've returned with mercy, he says. What a beautiful thing, mercy. We learned what mercy was last week. What's mercy? Come on, here's your test. Yeah, someone said it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Kevin. You had to throw me under the bus there. 
Yes, the answer is Jesus most of the time, except for when I ask you a different question. <laughs> I think Lonnie said it. Mercy, someone said it. I heard it. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what God has returned. They didn't deserve the blessing of God, did they? Do you deserve the blessing of God? No. But God says, I have returned with mercy. He goes on to say, my temple will be built. The city will be prosperous again. Why? Because he says, I have chosen Israel. I have chosen Jerusalem. And you know what we're going to see as we study Zechariah, as we go through this book? God is still passionate about Israel. God is still passionate about Jerusalem. And he's still not done with Israel and Jerusalem. But we're going to get to that later. Because today you need to know this. He speaks the same word over you. I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you, no matter how long you've been backslidden. You know, backslidden, the definition of backslidden, we think of backslider as someone that just completely abandons the faith. And technically, backslidden means to be slidden back from where you once were. Think of that. If I was with Jesus this intimate and this close, but now I'm back here, I'm backslidden. I'm not where I once was with him. And it's, he says, no matter how long you've been backslidden, no matter how long you've been in exile, how long you've been away from me, no matter what your family heritage may be, no matter what you may have done, you know, with your situation this morning, it may seem hopeless. And God, you know what, I love it. He doesn't just say it, but he cries it out. He cries it out again to you that I'm not done with you. Verse 17, in fact, he uses the word four times. Again, four times in that one sentence. I will be merciful with you again. I will choose you again. I will bless you again. I will forgive you again. Hebrews 13, 5, you know what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, 20, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You see, coming back wasn't just so that they could rebuild a temple. It was really so that, that God could rebuild a people. And so, are you coming back this morning? As we close, you know, God hasn't moved, have you? God hasn't moved, have you? He calls us this morning to discern what he is doing in our life and in our midst, and will we respond? Will we return? Will we learn? I just want to close this morning. Connor's going to come back and just, just play instrumentally on the, on the guitar for a minute. I just want us to just give space right now for God to speak. That's all I want to do, is to quiet ourselves and allow him to speak, to stand among, as you could say, perhaps the myrtle trees, to stand amongst us right now and begin to speak to us. And so I just want to give him room right now. And so can we just give him space? Can we just close our eyes? I find if I close my eyes, I, I, I can hear God's voice better in my life. And so let's just close our eyes just for this, this final minute or two and allow the Lord to speak to us this morning. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.